Well, good morning, Connection Point Church. How are y'all doing? Good. All right. I got some head nods. If you're watching online, you couldn't see how many head nods. They were very affirmative head nods. Um, first of all, uh, it's kind of exciting to be in almost June here, and I'm in a jacket because it's chilly. And so uh, that's kind of nice. We're out looking over a pool, and no one's in the pool, and probably not going to be in for a while. Uh, I kind of like this weather, though, so it's been kind of nice. And last night, it was great having cool weather because we had a milestone in the Halpin uh, family last night. We had our first graduation. My oldest son, Clayton, he graduated last night. And uh, I'm just so proud of, of him. And this year, I mean, he's got a job. He's got, uh, he, you know, he's done with school now. He's uh, uh, paying for his own car. He's just doing all these grown-up stuff that I see. And I'm like, wow, I'm so proud of my son. Uh, but I also this this uh, this morning last night, one of the things that uh, has kind of come back into my mind was uh, what happened to us about uh, seven or eight years ago with Clayton, and that is there was a day when uh, Clayton was diagnosed with type one diabetes, and some of y'all were in our church now. Y'all remember us going through that uh, diagnosis, but. Um, one of the things when Clayton was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which if you don't know, that's basically where your pancreas quits working and actually got, kind of goes against itself. And uh, what happens is there's this fear. You can't regulate your blood sugar. And so uh, it can go low. And if it goes low, then you can just basically pass out and go to sleep and never wake up. But if it goes high, you can go into a coma and you can pass out and never wake up again. And there's this constant Fear, and it's a very, I mean, people, it is a serious, serious uh, disease. And so when he was diagnosed with this, all of these fears came through uh, our life. In fact, we were just trying to see is he ever gonna, gonna, is he gonna make it through the next few weeks, let alone is he gonna make it to, uh, you know, next year? Is he gonna make it? And then the idea of graduation was just kind of put on my heart, even back then, of, Man, I, I, I just want to be able to see him graduate and start hitting these milestones and, and all of these things, but I couldn't see how that was ever going to happen when it happened. When we got that diagnosis, I'm telling you, we were up every night, and, and for the first few weeks, you just have to, you have to poke his finger, you have to t draw his blood, you have to give him insulin, and everything is a math problem in which you know one variable out of 80 variables that need to be known. And Eric and I, we would stay up all night and take shifts and try to figure out how we can uh, just watch him. And, and, and there was no rest when we were going through that time. And I remember uh, my brother and his wife, Rachel, they, uh, they have a son that also has type 1 diabetes. And so I remember them saying to us back in that day of, listen, he is going to make it through this. He is going to figure this out. You just have to trust God. It is going to be all right. And at the time, there was no way. I did not see a way in which we were going to be just confident, able to sleep through the night. And talking about me and Erica, uh, in confidence that my son would be okay in the morning. It was a fear that we just battled every single day. And, and, you know, when it started off, just getting through a day was a victory. And, and sometimes that's where we find ourselves in life, where I just want to get through this day. And it's step by step. It's can I get through what I'm trying to get through? But going day by day, going step by step, going by sight, where you just see the next horizon or whatever, eventually gets exhausting. 
It gets exhausting just trying to survive, just trying to get to the next day. And it wasn't until we really heard these promises from uh, my brother and from his wife, and we saw some other teenagers, and we met some doctors that had type 1 diabetes, and they began to show us, listen, you've just got to have faith that this is going to work itself out. You know, today I want to talk to us about walking by faith, and this is why this is important, because it is exhausting to go on your own strength through life. It is exhausting to think I've got to hold everything together. It's exhausting to think that if I make a mistake or if I make the wrong decision or a wrong turn, it's exhausting to think that everything in my life is held together by me. But yet that's how many of us find ourselves. And in fact, this whole past year, and some of us even right now, we find ourselves in in just situations where we feel like we've got to make all the right decisions. We've got to be finagling. We've got to be putting all the pieces in order. And if we make a mistake or if somebody comes over and kicks everything over and it falls apart, what are we going to do? And it's exhausting to walk by sight when you think everything is up to you. And so today I want to look at the life of Abram, who we've been looking at up for the last couple of weeks. And I want us to look specifically at how he walks by faith and not by sight. So we're going to be back in Genesis chapter 13. And just so you can kind of remember, uh, Abram is a normal guy uh, in that he is not the most godly guy. He was a pagan uh, worshiping a different God, and God called him to not only to convert and to follow and to trust God, but he also said, you need to go where I'm going to show you. you need, there's a promised land. You need to go there, and if you are there, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to sustain you. But he had doubts, and in the first week we talked about the fact that he didn't go straight there. He, he listened to some other voices. He made some other decisions, and it took him a while. But God was faithful to his promise, even while Abram was trying to figure out, should I really go all in on this? Last week, we talked about self-reliance, where Abram is actively, it seemed like, going against God, where he goes down to Egypt, and he says, you know what, I want to do this uh, uh, my way, and he goes to Egypt. He makes some horrible decisions that most of us, our wives would have left us, kicked us to the curb, but for some reason, his wife is more gracious. Uh, uh, I don't know, it's a God thing that she was still with him, because he made a horrible mistake, but yet God still blessed him in that. And that's where we pick up today. We pick up in Genesis chapter 13 uh, with verse 1. It says this. It says, so Abram went, went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot wasn't with him. Remember, Lot is his, Lot is his nephew. Uh, we don't know Lot's age, by the way. He may actually be older than uh, Abram. We don't know. They went back into the Negev, which is uh, a desert. It's a wilderness. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where he had pitched his tent in the beginning, or between Bethel and Ai, to a place where he had first made the altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So he's, he's made a horrible mistake. He's come back and God has reset him. God has protected him. God has seen him through even his own mistakes, which were rebellion against what God had told him to do. But God still protected him, still brought him back. And now he finds himself a wander again. Now, I want to tell you that in, in verse 2, this word journeyed, it says he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel. What that really means is, uh, if you were to make the little, literal translation, is he went from place to place. 
So in other words, he's back in uh, the, what we would call Israel today, the Middle East, but uh, he's wandering within this place. So in other words, he's in the place God told him to, but God didn't call him to a city. God said, you can go wherever, as long as you're in this country, as long as you're in this land, you've got freedom to wander. And so we kind of introduced this idea of a godly wanderer. Because most of us think that it's one path, we have to do exactly what uh, this, this uh, game plan that God has for us. If we go to the right or the left, we screw it all up. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Instead, we see this, this place where God says, hey, if you'll just stay in my boundaries, if you'll stay in this protection, you can go wherever. And so he's got these large uh, herds, and, and, he's, and he's going from place to place so that they can feed. He's going from water source to water source because he doesn't want to exhaust where he's at. And all of this, he's able to go wherever he wants. And so he, sometimes he goes into the wilderness. He's kind of learning, okay, I can go into the wilderness in these seasons, and then he can go into uh, to some of the more lush places. And so he's wandering around, but he's anchored to God, and he, and he builds these altars. He builds these, uh, the, he takes these moments where he gets out of the day-to-day, and he just says, I'm going to build an altar here, I'm going to worship, and I'm going to just, just rely on God to sustain me. And so he's in this flow where he is really just anywhere he, he goes, he is in God's will because he is anchored in Christ, or anchored in God, even when he's wandering. And we, have, we, we talked about this has so many implications for your life. You know, if you are single, there's so many times that we, we um, see single people feel like there is just a path you're supposed to go on and you feel as if you're not in the right place just because uh, you're not doing what, you know, your, your expectations of your, your family or your grandmother or somebody says, you know, you're supposed to get married, you're supposed to do this. But we see this, this freedom that if you're in God's will and you're single, you're free to follow God's will wherever it takes. And the same for us when we're married. When we're married, if we have these boundaries in our marriage, but that's a way that God is going to grow us. That There's so much freedom when we are in and anchored in God, in Christ, that we can actually wander and pursue the things God calls us to. And that's this idea of being a wanderer, a godly wanderer. So he's there, he's wandering, things seem to be going well. And then Lot, who if you remember in the first week we said, Lot was technically not supposed to be here. God had said, leave your family and go. And one of the reasons is because he, he knew that Abram had the call, but his family, they might not have gotten the call as much. They might have been busy. They might not have been listening. And Lot and his father, and there were several people that are going to cause some problems because they are not in tune with this call. And so Lot, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Now, this is a big place. It could technically or physically support them, okay? It, it, so when I read this, if you want to put the, the right emphasis, you would say not that the land could not support them. You would say the land could not support them. In other words, it was the personalities. It was the people here that, that where the conflict lies. And Lot, you can see, is blessed as well as Abram. So Lot was, was like Abram. He did not have a lot at the beginning of the story, but through Abram getting blessed, Lot is getting blessed because God made this promise, who is ever with you, I'm going to bless them. Who's against you, I'm going to curse you. That's a big deal, and Lot's about to find out it's a big deal. So Lot uh, uh, and Abram, uh, there's strife between this. This is verse 7. There's strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. 
And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and the Perizzites uh, were dwelling in the land. Okay, and so their their herdsmen, their people are beginning to to fight with one another, and there are some actually uh, not necessarily enemies, but not friendly uh, faces around too, who are probably taking some of the best uh, water sources, and they've been there longer, and the best land as well. So this strife begins to pop up, and this is something that happens uh, all over. You know, our lives, as strife pops up, especially when stress comes and, and you start adding personalities into the mix and all of these things. But I want you to just real quick, I want you to think of the worst case scenario for Abram. And you might be able to come up with some better, some of y'all are better at the negative thinking than I am. Some of you could come up with some crazy things that could, but what's the worst thing that could happen to Abram if, uh, if this keeps going this way? You know, should he act? What should he act? Should he fight for this? Should he tell Lot, hey, I'm the leader here. God gave me the promise. Should he bow up? How should he react? I want you to try to put yourself in uh, this situation or in a similar situation to when you get stressed, when you get into a, a situation in which your livelihood, the promises of God maybe, the vision you have of your future, when those things get tested, I want you to think of your default my guess is your default involves at least some negative thinking of what could go wrong. And so if you're Abram, I mean, what could go wrong? Well, uh, he could uh, lose all of the best lands and not be able to, um, to, to support his family anymore. If, uh, if Lot's herdmen, you know, maybe even start a war or start a family conflict that, that separates them and they start stealing from one, it could go real bad. They could be driven to a place. If Abram separates, he could go into the wrong place and maybe the, the Canaanites are already there and they start taking, or, um, taking from him or maybe even kill and, and start harming him. So there's a lot at stake if you just look at what's going on here. And so there's this decision that we've got to see, and it's a decision that is going to be made with high-pressure stakes. Understand that, that this is not just, hey, let's figure this out. This is stakes, okay? Livelihoods here, not just for him, but for all of the people that are with Abram. But I want you to see how Abram reacts to strife. Maybe even think about how you would react in this situation. It says, then Abram, this is verse 8, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. It is, is it not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. What I want you to see is that Abram is no longer running to Egypt. He's no longer trying to, to finagle this out and see, how can I work this out? Here's a man who's seen, you know what? God seems to be working with me no matter what I do, no matter how I try to screw this up. God seems to have a promise, and he seems to have a vision for my life. I'm going to trust him even in, in a situation like this where I'm giving Lot the power to decide which the best land. Well, Lot you know, is going to make his decision. But notice this mindset, this peacemaking mindset that we see. He doesn't defend himself. He just says, hey, you choose. I'm going to let you choose because I don't want the strife. But under the circumstances, this is not something of weakness. This is something of faith. This is a decision of power. This is one of confidence, simply not confidence in Lot, confidence in what the Lord is doing in the life of Abram and his family, Okay. He's been wandering, and now he's going to have some of that limited simply because somebody has started uh, strife with him. 
It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley and it was well watered and everywhere like the garden of the Lord. It looked like the garden of Eden. And the land, uh, it was like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So remember, when the people are reading this book, it's several hundred years at least after this story. And so they know now Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. In fact, if you walk this land, I've been there before. It is, uh, a lot of this land is not good anymore. It's, it's salt lands, and uh, the Dead Sea has, uh, over the last couple thousand years, has killed a lot of the vegetation, at least in the southern part of, the, of it. But then it was very lush. It was, it was a great place to be. Sodom and Gomorrah were, in, it were founded cities because it was a good place to live. There was a lot there. It says, so Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities and valleys and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and they were great sinners against the Lord. Now we all like to be great, but there's some things you don't want to be great at. Being a great sinner is one of those things that we want to try to avoid if we can. But one of the things, just the, the character traits here is this humility we're also seeing in Abram now. This is something he didn't have as much when he's talking to his wife and he's, hey, I got this. We're going to go to Egypt. I can solve this, this, and this. Here now we see this just humility and, and him learning these lessons that, you know what, I can trust God. And, and we're going to see him on a roller coaster. I'm, I'm not going to say he's going to be perfect for the rest of the, the, his story arc, so to speak. But one of the things you can see now in his life is he's beginning to notice that that I can give this power over to Lot, I can let him choose, and I'm going to trust God no matter what. And we begin to see some cracks in Lot's character. Lot doesn't care at all for Abram, the man who brought him here, who has sustained him, who has made him wealthy. All of these things, he does not, at no point does he even say, you know what, I'm going to let you choose, Abram, because you're the one that has, has led us this far. I'm going to let you have, you know, you deserve it because you've done a great job leading us. No, it's, he looks and he sees the best land, and even though it's near who are considered to be the, the most wicked people in the land, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though the best land is all around those cities where men are known to be wicked there, all he sees is, is what he sees. And he decides, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to take the best for myself. And then his arrogance and his selfishness, he walks by sight. He thinks only about the next day. It's going to be easy to get some fruit tomorrow because I can see it already ripe. Whereas Abram, he doesn't even consider what's Abram going to do. You know, am I going to take care of him? He doesn't even give him a little, hey, if things aren't going well for you, maybe let's talk about this in six months, see how it goes. No, Lot is gone. He just goes. And I want you to think about how Abram feels about this. Abram, you know, he knows Lot's walking away thinking, man, I just got the best end of the deal. Lot's walking away thinking, I just took advantage, man. Abram's such a, a fool, man. He's going to be living up there in Canaan while, man, I've got all of this. I've got a river. I've got, uh, uh, I've got all of this land that is just ripe, and it's, it's the perfect land. And he's not even thinking about the fact that, man, Abram is, is just being so humble right here. Abram doesn't, it's not that he, he, he doesn't even take side, he doesn't even take his own side. Abram is so trusting that God's will is going to go there. It's almost you see this just peace, this relaxation in Abram. And this is what happens next. It says, the Lord said to Abram, this is verse 14, after Lot separated from him, Abram might have been discouraged here. He might have been thinking, man, I just gave away the best. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I don't know what's, what's about to happen. 
But God said, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust. If anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, and he came and he settled at the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built another altar to the Lord. So even in this, he, he praises God and, and, he, and he walks all of the land. And, and back in the day, if you were a king, you would go on these, uh, these walks and you would actually walk all of your land. So it would let the people there know, oh, that's the king. He owns this land. And it would also be a way that the king would kind of say, claim the land. He would say, this is my land. And he would have to walk it so he could remind people, oh yeah, that's the king. And so God is having this symbolic walk with Abram where he says, you need to walk this land and you need to in your mind understand this is your land I'm giving it. And some of those places were the first time he'd ever gone there. But yet God's promise, if you notice every single week God has restated this promise in some way. I'm giving you this land. It's going to be yours forever. I'm going to give you offspring. And he's saying this to a man who has no children. And yet God consistently, consistently goes back to that promise with Abram. When I look at this story I think of so many ways in which so, so many of us struggle because we spend most of our days trying to figure out how we're going to plan and be productive and do all the things we're going to do to make sure we got food on the table tomorrow, that we do this and that. And it gets exhausting when you don't get to, to really lift your eyes up, but you just have to say, man, i got to take care of tomorrow, and then tomorrow I'm going to have to take care of the next day and the next day. And what if this? What if that? How many of you live your, your, your biggest decisions with, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? And everything becomes this weighted decision beyond your control. And Abram faces this, but instead of ending up with a worst case scenario, he ends up with beautiful land. And he, it's more than he probably expected because I've, I've been there. You can look down from Jerusalem. You can look down um, at, uh, into the valley of the Jordan River. And, and then you can see it's all mountains on this other side. So it would have been hard to see, man, there's good land all the way over. All, if you just keep going, there's good land after good land. But he wouldn't have been able to see it with just what he was seeing at that moment. But yet when you're on the mountain and you're looking down at the valley, you can see how great the valley looks. But you can't see when you're looking towards what's on the other side of that horizon, what's on the other side of that mountain. And so I, I look at this and it just brings so many different just ideas to my mind. And I want to go through a few of them with us um, before I close here. The first thing I, I just want to be clear on is this, and that is simply that as followers of Christ, we walk by faith, not sight. Okay, And I want us to just be clear on this. We walk by faith, not sight. Now, this is set, stated in the Bible several times. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Listen, the righteous live by faith. We live by faith, not what we see. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, So we are always of good courage. We should always be of good courage. Not just courage, like, okay, I'm going to get this done. It's good courage, always optimistic. For we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not sight. That's what Paul says. Is Listen, while we're on earth, we're not with Jesus. He can't tell us what to do next uh, um, audibly. But we know when we're away from him, we walk by faith that God is always working on our behalf. So what does this look like? 
people think we're crazy. It seems crazy at first to walk by sight because most people live their life walking simply by looking at the next horizon. They never get a godly vision of what God might do in your life or what God might do in their life because all we're focused on is the next thing. Maybe it's the next thing we buy. Maybe it's the the next thing we'll achieve. Maybe it's the the just, hey, the next day at work. Whatever it is, just the next horizon. And you'll never see the big picture of what God is doing in this world if we stay in the day-to-day. Sight is deceiving. And you will never have God's vision for your life if you cannot walk by faith. Every single thing as a Christ follower begins with faith. I mean, it's exhausting to live your life spiritually thinking how good is good enough so that God will love me. I know so many people who grew up in church and they spend their whole life wondering if they're good enough and it's exhausting. It's a, it's a, a merry-go-round of, am I good enough? I sinned yesterday. I, I reset everything. But when we have faith, you know what? Jesus died on a cross for us, and I put my faith in him. I know that even though I screwed up yesterday and I'll probably screw up tomorrow, we know when we walk by faith, even spiritually, we can, we can have peace. We can find rest. And so when we walk by faith, um, I would even say we wander by faith. When we're following God's will, no matter where it is, when we're anchored in our faith, the first thing I want you to see is that we are peacemakers, Christians should be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I want you to think back to Abram and how he took a situation of strife and anger and people yelling and raising their voices, and he's able to speak peace. And why was he able to speak peace into it? Why is he a peacemaker now? He's a peacemaker because his view of God got so much bigger. He he, he no longer thinks he has to control everything. Now he's beginning to see God is way bigger than I ever thought he was. God is in way more control of my life than I ever thought he was. And because I know that, I can now have peace. And and to be honest, Jesus says, blessed is the peacemakers. And and we have this view of Jesus and the way he works is he's in control of himself all the time. And it's not just because he's God, which that probably helps, right? But he also, he has a view of God. He knows what God can do. He knows God can raise the dead. He knows that God can speak life into bones and make them walk. Our view of God, I think, have got, has gotten so limited over the last year especially, but even over some of our lives that we've begun to, to lose that peacemaking. We get angry so easy. We, we get so frustrated so easy. You know, I, I think about um, politics right now a lot, and uh, I know y'all love to talk politics, so I, I want to apply this to politics just for a little. This, this applies the same to your, your family. If you're waking up and you know my kids are not going to be peacemakers tomorrow and I'm not going to be a peacemaker and, and you have this, I got I to gotta be a peacemaker tomorrow, it, it's the same in your house. But I want you to talk about politics for a little bit because we have this view for some reason, and, and even people in the church right now, that somehow politics is going to fix problems. Now, we would, if you hear that and you're like, oh, I don't believe that. Every single person I, that, that I get into good, you know, heated political discussion believes one way or the other, politics is going to fix something. And I will tell you, I think that this is walking by sight. I think this is trying to see something and, oh, that's the way out. I think that it is the opposite of walking by faith. And I will tell you this, that I think that this is the biggest example I can think of right now of how politics has made God so minimal, 
so minimal. So I want to go off on just a little bit of a diatribe here because I've been thinking about this. Because I get this a lot. I have people say, we need to talk more politics in church. You need to take more stands. And what they mean by this, when I'm told this, is you need to take the stand of the side I'm on. That's what people mean when they ask me to talk politics. Nobody's saying, hey, could you be on the other side of me? No one's saying that. But here's the thing is I've taken this stand for like the last year and no one says it's a stand, okay? My stand is the third option. My stand is that we are Christians, we follow Christ, we look for unity in Christ. That is my politics. That is my stand. And I think it's a big view, okay? Everything else is noise when we talk about politics, okay? Everything. If you are a Republican and you think that some Republican idea is going to save the country and save the world, hey, that is a small view of God. But if you are a Democrat and you think that there is some idea that is going to save it, then, then that is a small view of God. And I was thinking about this in so many ways. Um, peace, if I had to sum it up for us, peace will only come through the Prince of Peace. Okay, that's the only way peace happens, and that sounds like a, a pithy stand, but let me think of it like this. Right now, there's, there's, there's I don't know if y'all are aware of this, but the Middle East has some strife. Y'all know this? The, the Middle East, for the last, I don't know, ever has had some strife, okay? And in fact, it's even in here we see that there's strife. And when we, we talk politics, we say, you know what needs to happen? There needs to be a two-state solution. Or some say, you know what, we need to get the Zionists out of there. Some people say we got to get the Palestinians out and this and that. And there's always these solutions, these political sol- solutions, okay? But understand that my view of that is that that is a tiny idea. To me, the big idea is as Christians, we pray for reconciliations between Muslims and Jews. And we pray for reconciliation in Christ, now, some people will say that's crazy, but I will tell you what's crazier, that, uh, that Muslims are going to convert to Judaism or somehow find, is that, is that seem like an idea? Or that Jews are somehow going to convert? But I, I'm telling you, if this, okay, if you believe, and this only matters if you believe, if you believe Jesus Christ was a man who walked this earth, he died on a cross, he was dead and buried, and he rose from the dead by his own power. If you think a man is powerful enough, he is God enough that he can speak the dead to life, I'm telling you that we should all say everybody should follow him. Everybody. And if we want peace, we should, instead of trying to say you should do this, we should just point people to Jesus. That should be the solution to every political decision. If you're a Christian, that's just the truth, okay? And so it's not a small idea. And you could think of this everything, race relations, Okay, there are a thousand race relations. Hey, there's critical theory or race theory now of, listen, you've got to see how everybody's oppressed. You've got to be able to look at how people, their different power struggles, there's different this and that. Okay, that's one way to go about it, to say, hey, maybe we need reparations, maybe we need this, and, and try to find an idea. Or you can say, you know what, we need to call everyone to Christ so that everyone has this idea of a God who can raise the dead, and if we put all of our focus on him, listen, my brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what they look like, they are my brothers and sisters, and we are united in Christ, and I'm telling you, my heart is that that is a big view of God, that that is the way forward. And so let me just say this. If you use Bible verses to defend your political ideas, or if you use your idea that somehow God is on your political side, I think that is Silly theology. I think that is a a low view of who God is. But 
If you think about uh, all of the uh, upset people upset at a political party thinking, how can these people do this? How could they be even Christians on that side? And both sides say that. I think that we're so misguided on, on our, 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 how big God is. We're peacemakers. But you can't be peacemakers if you're fighting for your own side. Abram doesn't fight for his own side because he's confident in God. That's what I love about that. If you're seeking peace and your solution does not involve Jesus, you are wasting your time. If you're trying to point people to progress or to a solution, and at no point do you point them to Jesus, you are wasting your time. I promise you, you will point them in a direction of a solution that will not work because people are sinful. I'm sinful. We will break what you give us. We have to unite on Christ. Done with my political diatribe, but let me just tell you, I'm so passionate about the fact that Abram is a peacemaker because his view of God is so big, and so he's so anchored in who God is that he knows I've got to just follow God. It doesn't matter. I don't have to defend myself against Lot. He can have the best land because what I need is God in the worst land, and that's going to make it better, and that's what ends up happening. Next thing, when we wonder by faith, actually, I'm going to skip that one. I'm going to go to the last one for time. When we wonder by faith, we trust God for the best case scenario. This is what I think is a good way to just to, to summarize this. You know, scientifically, we are geared to, to find the worst case scenario. If you have stress hit you, the first thing that will come to your mind is the worst case scenario. And then probably a lot of curse words and a lot of, you know, this is awful. Why does God always do this, this and that? And that's what happens. You know what, though? Realistically, the worst case scenario rarely ever happens. Rarely ever. Because God is a good God. He provides. He's given you a brain. He's given you relationships. He's given you churches, the people that will help you. There's so many things in which we think it's always going to go south. It's always going to be the worst case. And if you'll notice, it's rarely like that. I'll give you, it reminds me of, I cleaned out my garage not too long ago, and I had a whole crate, and I'm talking like one of those, the biggest crate you can buy of cables from the last 20 years. Anybody have a crate like that, by the way? And I'm telling you, if you need to connect a VCR to an 80s, you know, camcorder, I was your guy, okay? I, 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 I had them all. And I could connect printers that we haven't had in 20 years to computers that we haven't had in 10 years, and I could do it for you, Okay. And so when I threw this box of cables out, because everything I own is wireless anyway, I threw this out, I just had this mindset of what's, what's going to happen. I'm going to have to connect a VCR next week. I know as soon as I throw this out, I'm going to have to connect a VCR. And, and my mind went to the silliest worst case scenarios in which somehow we're stuck and, and the guy who hadn't opened that box and, and came across it because I, it was up in my attic or wherever it was, all of a sudden I was thinking, I can't go without this. I've... I'm losing a lot of control if I get rid of these cables I never use. You know, I think so much of our lives are like that. God has made us very resourceful as humans. I'll probably be able to find whatever cable I'm going to need. I'll probably be able to, to, to figure it out. But here's what I want you to think. I don't know where you've been over the last years. I don't know what you've been going through. If you feel like you've been wandering, maybe unanchored. I don't know if you feel exhausted because every single day just seems to be like getting through the day. The kids are always going to yell today. They're going to yell tomorrow. Yeah, my, my, my work is going to be hard today, and, and it's going to be hard the next day and the next day. I don't know where you are if you get exhausted just be, um, from the idea that this never ends. 
the solution is. We walk by faith, and it's a faith in a God who has proved himself to us over and over and over again. You are here. I don't care what you've been through. You are here, and you all look pretty good, by the way. You're, you're looking pretty good, okay? God has sustained you. God has brought you through things. It may not have been the way you choose, but God has, has brought you through whatever it's been going on, and he's brought you here, and he's going to continue to do that into the new years. And when, well, just like Paul says, if we're not here away from God, where are we going to be? We're going to be there with God. That's the promise we have in Christ. It only gets better for us. Jesus is always going to come through for us, and he always has. You are here. You are a living testament to the fact that you can trust God in faith in your life if you will anchor yourself when you wander, when you walk, and walk in faith, not sight. You'll never know if you're good enough for God if you only go by this, by what you see. You'll never know if you did enough with the things God give you, gives you if you just look at your life, if you look at the things you can see. If you just look at how good you're being today, you'll, you'll always have that. Am I good enough for God to actually let me into heaven? Am I good enough for God to actually bless? You'll always have these questions when you go by sight. Some of y'all look at me as a pastor and say, man, I don't even know if he looks barely saved sometimes. And I would say amen to that. But the truth is, I'm not trying to, to win God's favor by being good enough or doing enough or, or walking by sight. Instead, it is all faith. It's a faith that God made promises to us, started thousands of years ago. He renewed them to us daily, and then eventually he proved it to us in Jesus Christ by sending Jesus, dying on a cross, raised from the dead. There is nothing coming your way that God is not going to see you through. And when we look at the life of Abram, finally we're beginning to see this glimpse of this imperfect man who is so anchored in God that he knows, even if I give up the control of my life, God is going to bless me. And that's my hope and my prayer for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone in this, in this room, everyone that's watching this uh, on a screen Lord, so many of us get bogged down into trying to control our lives and trying to make all the right decisions and thinking we have to fight when somebody comes against us or when somebody tries to take what's ours. We have to fight because if we don't fight for it, it'll be taken and we'll lose everything that we've ever had. Lord, I pray that you will grow our vision of you, that we'll see that the God we do have is bigger than any possession we think we might need. The God we do have is bigger than any any victory, any achievement, anything we've ever had, those things are small when we think about how great our Creator, our Savior, our God is. Lord, we will walk in faith, not because we're weak, but because we're so confident in your strength. So Lord, I pray that we walk out of here knowing that the best is yet to come, even if we were, we were dreading this week. Some of us may have been thinking, oh, I don't even want a new month to start. I don't even want to go through what's coming next. Lord, I pray you give us a supernatural confidence in you of knowing you are bigger than anything we're going to face this week. And you've brought us through some of the hardest things we ever thought that we never thought we'd get through. And yet we're standing here as a testament to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.